This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. was captured on canvas by Andy Warhol in 1984 in a series of silkscreen artworks, stylized variations on a photograph of the rock star. The legal battle over Warhol's famed print series didn't begin until after both their deaths. And this March, photographer Lynn Goldsmith convinced the Second Circuit Court of Appeals that Warhol's print series was not fair use and infringed the copyright of her photo of Prince. The Second Circuit decided to revisit that controversial decision after the Supreme Court's landmark ruling about fair use in Google versus Oracle. However, this week, the Second Circuit basically said we were right the first time. Joining me to put this all in perspective is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Rosenman. Terry, give us the background of the case. So, June, the plaintiff in this lawsuit is Lynn Goldsmith, who's a sort of prominent photographer, and in 1981, taken a series of photographs of the musical artist Prince. And those photographs are relatively well known. At some point after that, Andy Warhol did a very impressionistic work of Prince that was based unabashedly on her photograph from 1981. After his death in 2016, Vanity Fair used on its cover one of those Andy Warhol prints of Prince, the artist, and Lynn Goldsmith sued, alleging that that constituted copyright infringement because they did not have her authorization to use what she believed was her work. The Andy Warhol Foundation, which controls all of his works, argued that what Andy Warhol had done with her photograph was transformative, and therefore the fair use defense protected against any copyright infringement. And that argument prevailed in the district court, the lower court. Lynn Goldsmith appealed the decision to the Second Circuit, which is the appellate court for New York and Connecticut, and the Second Circuit agreed with her. They said fair use defense would not apply here because what Andy Warhol had done to her photograph was not transformative. After that decision came down, the United States Supreme Court issued its ruling in the Google versus Oracle case, which is also a copyright decision, although involving source code in the computer context. As a result of that decision from the Supreme Court, the Andy Warhol Foundation went back to the Second Circuit and asked the Second Circuit to reconsider its decision in light of the new Supreme Court ruling and to see if they might come out in a different manner on the fair use question. So the Second Circuit considers this again, but comes to the same conclusion. Did they really take Google Coracle into consideration? Well, I think they did take it into consideration. I think what happened here is that when Google v. Oracle first was issued by the Supreme Court, a lot of people, including copyright practitioners, did not fully grasp the import of it. The media certainly treated it as if it was a case that changed copyright law. And I think the media was more focused on the result of the decision than on what the decision actually said. And because of the sheer length of it, I think it took time for people to 
read and understand and comprehend it and appreciate what the Supreme Court was saying. So the Second Circuit receives this request from the Andy Warhol Foundation saying, oh, the Supreme Court's new decision in Goofy Oracle is, changes everything in the copyright field for fair use. You got to go back and rethink it. And without really taking the time to consider whether or not that was true, the Second Circuit granted the request for rehearing. They then took briefs from both the parties on why Google v. Oracle was meaningful to the dispute. And after thinking about it and the conclusion, you know, Google versus Oracle wasn't as game-changing as some people were representing it to be and certainly did not change anything in this particular case. When we spoke about this last, I was astonished that the Second Circuit unanimously found that Andy Warhol's work was not transformative. I mean, he transformed a Campbell soup can, and this print series looks so different from the photograph, to me at least. So I won't disagree with you because I'm not an art critic. The problem the Second Circuit had with what the trial court did, and it just came straight out and said this, that the district court played art critic in this case, and that we have cautioned, the Second Circuit has cautioned since 1920 trial judges should not be art critics or music critics. They are not allowed to use their view of whether or not a piece of art is transformative as determinative. In essence, the court was saying, look, we think you've got to take an approach that does not require the court to be an expert because courts are not experts, whether it comes to literary publishing, music publishing, art they're not experts. You can't do what you did. And then they pointed to a whole bunch of similarities between the photo of Prince and Andy Warhol's rendering of Prince, including the way his hair was parted and portrayed. That was a counterbalance to what the district court had pointed out, which you just now, June, pointed out. But isn't the Second Circuit in making that decision also being an art critic? One could certainly argue that that's true, that at some point or other, somebody is playing art critic here. It goes to the nature of the test. In order for fair use to apply, there's a four-factor test. And here, the key, again, focused on by the Second Circuit, and the Supreme Court has said this itself in previous cases, is whether or not the work is transformative. Because if the allegedly infringing work is transformative, whatever that means, then the fair use arguably should apply, notwithstanding how the other three factors come out. And that's the real problem. Once we bought into this linguistic box of whether or not something was transformative or not, words which, by the way, are not in the statute, but once we've applied those judicially created word transformative to this, you get into a box as to who makes that decision and how do you go about making that decision, especially when it comes to art or music, which are inherently creative processes on which even critics can disagree. Were you surprised that the Second Circuit said we were right the first time? I think everyone was surprised by the decision that just came out from the Second Circuit. And it seemed to me that the only reason to grant a rehearing, indeed a rehearing specifically directed at how Google v. Oracle impacted the case, was to say we got it wrong. And the Supreme Court has now showed us the way. And we're going to change course and reverse ourselves. And they did not do that. At the Supreme Court, they have a doctrine where sometimes they will agree to hear a case, and then after really studying it carefully and thinking about it, they go, you know, this was a mistake. And they dismiss it as improvidently granted. And that's what the Second Circuit probably should have done here, is simply say, you know, we were right the first time. Google v. Oracle doesn't change the law and leave it at that. 
Instead, they decided to go through with a decision after receiving all the papers on rehearing in which they reiterated what they'd said before, but calling out that Google v. Oracle requires a context-specific application of fair use doctrine, and in the context of this particular case, there is no fair use. The Warhol Foundation says it hasn't decided what it's going to do next. They could take this to the Supreme Court. So yes, they could. They have two options. The first option is they could ask for a rehearing on bonk of the Second Circuit. What that would mean is that they think that this particular three-judge panel of the Second Circuit has gotten it wrong, that previous cases in the Second Circuit dictate a different outcome. And the way it works is that a three-judge panel is not allowed to change the law in a circuit. They have to abide by prior cases. And in particular, there's the Carew case, going back a few years, which involved changing a photograph of some Rastafarians in Jamaica by adding doodles and drawings onto the photographs and then selling them as independent works of art. And in that case, the Second Circuit had ruled that that constituted fair use. There was no infringement. And so the option that the Andy Warhol Foundation has here is to ask for a rehearing on Bonk and specifically say, we think this decision violates the Second Circuit's precedent in that Carew case and other decisions. And if a majority of the all the judges on the Second Circuit agree that there's a problem here, that the two cases need to be reconciled in some way, they can grant a rehearing on Bonk, get new briefing, have a new oral argument in front of all 13 judges, and then they will issue a new decision that incorporates the views of all the judges on the Second Circuit. And it seems to me that that would be the most logical step for the Andy Warhol Foundation to take here, because there is a real question in my mind and in the mind of most copyright practitioners as to whether this current decision between Goldsmith and the Andy Warhol Foundation deviated from the way the Second Circuit had approached the fair use doctrine in the past. So that's, I think, the strongest approach they have. If that is denied, they then have the option of appealing to the Supreme Court. Not that the Second Circuit cares about my opinion, but personally, I would love it if they took this case on bank because I don't see how you reconcile the print series not being transformative and the Carew being transformative. And June, I don't see any intellectually principled way to distinguish the two cases. I think the Second Circuit on Bonk has to say, we got one wrong and the other one right, and going forward, this is the way things are going to be done. And I will say this as a copyright practitioner with many clients and cases in New York, we need some guidance from the Second Circuit on what is fair use in these cases. And if they are unwilling to do that, it would be nice to get some guidance from the Supreme Court because we are left unable to advise our clients often or unfortunately using weasel words and saying, well, it could go this way, it could go this way, it's just too hard <laughs> to tell, which doesn't help the client very much because clients want certainty and it's what's missing here in the fair use area. And it would be nice if either the Second Circuit or the Supreme Court gave us some certainty. Thanks, Terry. That's Terrence Ross of Catton Rosenman. Many college students returning to the classroom this fall will face an ultimatum, get vaccinated or go home. About 750 colleges and universities are requiring vaccines for students or employees, according to a database by the Chronicle of Higher Education. The FDA's full approval of the Pfizer vaccine is a game changer, putting the COVID vaccine on par with the other vaccines that colleges and universities require. 
but COVID vaccine mandates for students have triggered a growing wave of lawsuits against higher education institutions. My guest is Lawrence Gostin, director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law at Georgetown University. Should we expect more mandates and more challenges to the mandates? Yes, we're going to expect both. I think that now that the FDA has fully licensed the Pfizer vaccine and soon will fully license the Moderna vaccine, more and more colleges and universities and indeed businesses and local governments are going to require vaccines as a condition for coming back to school or to work. And I think that that's entirely lawful. America is a highly litigious society, so there can continue to be lawsuits. But I do foresee that the courts are going to throw these lawsuits out. And eventually, vaccine mandates are going to be coming the norm in the United States for a safe return to work or to the classroom. So what are some of the arguments that are made against vaccine mandates? Well, you know, the legal arguments are very weak. Most of these lawsuits were predicated on the idea that it was emergency use authorization. So that argument melts away now that Pfizer is fully licensed and soon Moderna. And so there are very few good legal arguments. I mean, I suppose they could argue that colleges or businesses don't have the power to do it. But the truth is, is that, that colleges and businesses have been doing it for years, you know, with influenza and other vaccines. And so I don't think those arguments are very strong. Now, there are also kind of ethical arguments that somehow this invades a person's freedom or liberty. And, you know, to that, I just say this, you know, anyone has the absolute right to make any decision for their own health and safety, but they don't have the right to expose other people to a dangerous infectious disease. You don't have the right to go unvaccinated and unmasked in a crowded classroom or a crowded workspace. That just exposes others to danger. And there's a long tradition in the United States that you have your freedom, but your freedom ends when you pose a significant risk to others. And that's what unvaccinated people do. I understand that some students are claiming they have a constitutional right to go to college in person and unvaccinated. It's almost a laughable legal argument. <laughs> um, you know, no, there is, there is no right to go to college. <laughs> that's why we have an admission system and why we give colleges um, discretion at who they admit and who they don't. And colleges also have an absolute right, not just a right, but a responsibility um, to create a safe workplace. Remember, they're, they're acting in local parentis, and they need to ensure that these young people under their care are, are safe and secure. Um, so there is, And there is no constitutional right to do that. I don't know. It's almost a made-up right. But I suppose you can claim to have a right to do anything. And, you know, the truth is, is that nobody's denying them the right to go to college or university. They're literally just saying, you know, if you want to go, you have to go safely. Are these challenges new or are these challenges similar to ones made in the past to other vaccines? You mentioned influenza, but maybe measles, mumps, you know, are these the same kind of challenges? Yes, but I have to say that all of these vaccine challenges have really been unsuccessful. You mentioned measles and mumps, the childhood immunization schedule that is required for students to go to K through 12. Courts have upheld them. Supreme Court has upheld it twice. And so these are not good legal arguments. But the truth is, is that I've never seen an epidemic that was politicized the way that COVID-19 is. 
people accept that you know you need to get vaccinated, you know, for measles, mumps, rubella, um, and other infectious diseases, and, and there's no argument about it because that we live in a well ordered society where we look out for one another. But this is just every neutral public health tool is now controversial. Masks are controversial. Vaccines are controversial. Lockdowns were controversial. And basically, you know, nobody wants to, at least I don't, to shame and blame people who are unvaccinated. And I don't want to take away their health insurance or make it more expensive for them. Many of them are really decent, good Americans trying to make the best decision for themselves and their families. But at the end of the day, we need to make sure that we look out for one another. And it's not all about me, me, me. It's about what ethical obligations I have to my family, to my neighbors, to my country, so that we can all be safe and secure. And so vaccines, masks, and other things, they're just public health tools. They're not Republican. They're not Democrat. They're not trying to punish or blame anyone. They're literally just scientific tools that we need to ensure a greater level of health and safety and security, which is what all we want. And it's, it just doesn't make sense um, for us to litigate over it. Universities. Earlier this month, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit refused to block Indiana University's vaccine mandate. What can we read into the fact that Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett refused without explanation to block the school's mandate? I mean, I think we can just simply assume that even one of the most conservative justices that we have, uh, Justice Coney Barrett, um, is not prepared to strike down a provision that's clearly uh, lawful um, and it's clearly needed for the public's health. So now a dozen states have bans on vaccine mandates that apply to institutions of higher education. How does that play in? What part does that play in this? It plays an important part. You know, I've worked in public health for over 30 years and I've seen many, many times when states or political leaders have failed to take necessary and important public health action to protect the public. But I don't think I've ever seen states and governors and legislators actually blocking local governments and school districts from protecting themselves. It just makes no sense to actually ban something that the public relies on for its health and safety and that there's an overwhelming scientific consensus um, that it's vital and important and safe, vaccines and masks. And why, you know, an elected political leader would betray the public trust that way, I have no idea. It just seems like a, a deep betrayal of their oath of office. Having but- said that, you know, states do have very wide powers to regulate colleges, universities, and businesses that are operating solely within their state. And probably many of these are going to be upheld. So you think that if one of these cases goes to court in a state where there's a ban on vaccine mandates, that the ban will win out over the vaccine mandates? Well, on the basis that states have the right to regulate businesses and states have 
have the right to require local jurisdictions, counties, cities, school boards, to do what the state wants. The state does have that power. You know, having said all that, you know, there, in Texas, um, there's a widespread revolt against Governor Abbott's um, uh, ban on uh, masking and vaccinations in schools and other places. Um, and many are defying uh, the governor's orders. And there's been a lot of litigation. So far, the courts have not been prepared to uphold Governor Abbott's uh, order. Um, and they've said, you know, why is the governor preventing local officials and school districts from doing what they think is necessary to protect um, the health of students and others? But ultimately, I mean, I'm not sure how the courts will decide. On a policy basis, it's crazy and should be struck down. But on a legal basis, state legislators and governors do have authority over businesses. They can regulate them. They even locked them down during the pandemic, and courts upheld that. So it seems to me that these are extraordinarily unwise laws and, uh, and executive orders. Um, but in many states, they'll probably be upheld. So that would give the state the power to tell a university that you have to admit this student who is not vaccinated. Yes, ultimately, because if, if the uh, college is not able to require proof of vaccination under state law, just like, you know, the state public health department set rules, you know, they say, you need to have certain social distancing in schools or you can't gather um, at, at certain density levels or that um, there needs to be indoor mask mandates. Those are all things that, that the state can do. They're wise, they're sensible, you know, but the question is really boils down to this. Can the state do something that's crazy <laughs> if it's within its powers? And, you know, the court's going to have to decide that, but they're judges and they can't be basing it on upon policy. They have to look at what the powers of the state are. And the state, as I say, you know, locked entire uh, cities down. Um, and if they can do that, they can pretty much do anything. So then what's going to end up happening is you're going to have a, a patchwork of different laws across the country. We do already. We do have a patchwork of different laws across the country. You know, many many parts of the country require indoor masking. Some don't. There is no national uniformity and consistency. And when you're dealing with a pandemic, um, you know, the SARS-CoV-2 pathogen, you know, doesn't know that it's in Texas or Florida or New York, and it's going to spread either way. And so we we need, you know, national consistency and uniformity based upon the tenets of science. You know, we have to remember that there is really good scientific evidence that vaccines are safe and effective and that masks work to reduce spread of the infection, including the Delta variant. Let's say it goes to court. In the states that ban the COVID vaccine, if these same states allow vaccine mandates for the childhood illnesses, how do they square that discrepancy? Yeah, I mean, they shouldn't obviously distinguish. I mean, I suppose they could have distinguished before because these childhood vaccines were fully licensed and COVID-19 vaccines were not. But now that distinction has vanished. Um, so, you know, f 
from a rational point of view, um, the distinction really has no merit. Um, but that's what the states have done. You know, it's some, in many cases, it's been a law that's been passed by the state legislature and signed by the governor. And the state does have a lot of authority to regulate colleges, universities, businesses that are operating wholly within within the state. Um, I suppose the state Supreme Court could say, well, listen, you're acting uh, in an arbitrary and irrational manner and strike it down on that basis. Um, but they tend to give the legislature wide discretion um, in setting policy. I mean, this policy, as I say, you know, just not to put too fine a point on it, is nuts. But there you go. Thanks for being on the Bloomberg Law Show. That's Lawrence Gostin, director of the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law at Georgetown University. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.